My name is John. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I have the joy and privilege of being one of the pastors here, and very grateful that you're joining us this morning. Uh, if you are able, I uh, would love for you to stand as we read the passage that is, uh, the teaching is based on this morning, from Galatians 4, verse 4 to 7. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. This is God's word. You can grab a seat. Well, welcome here once again. We're back into a series on uh, Galatians. We spent about 10 weeks after Easter studying uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, a a letter in the New Testament of the Bible. And we're back for about another 10 weeks leading up to Advent and Christmas this year uh, as we study the second half of the letter. And the first half of the book, I would say, was a lot about ideas, or at least the first half of our study was a lot about ideas. And last week, I tried to recap one of the most important ideas for us as a church, that God is inviting us to become a church that's centered on Jesus. So we're not about creating boundaries a set of rules, beliefs, behaviors that we're saying that's when you're in and you're out. That's not how we define our group. And we're also not trying to set a fuzzy group of people, kind of like a Christian whateverism, that nothing matters. It doesn't matter what you believe or what you think. But rather, we're just pursuing a different way of approaching God and church family, which is asking two questions. The first is we want to get clear about the person of Jesus, that he stands at the center of our community. And the second question we're asking is, which direction are we heading? Which direction is your life heading? Are you headed towards Jesus or away from him? So that's what we talked about last week. And the second half of the series, starting today, is going to now start focusing less on ideas and more on the so what of community. The so what of the Christian faith. And I love what one commentator said about where we're at in the letter to the Galatians. He said, on one hand, we go from theology, which is kind of like ideas about who God is, Two ethics, which is ways to act. How does this take take root in our community and in our lives? But for Paul, there's actually no division between these two things. I think in our brains, we often make a division where we say what we believe and how we act are two very different things. But for Paul, there isn't. Because theology for him always nets out into social practice. Another way of saying it is that grace always has to be articulated through a community of people who are walking by the Spirit. And that's exactly what Paul says at the beginning of this passage. He says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And so he's here talking about this grace that we've received, that we've talked about already in the beginning of the study, and we'll come back to it again. This gift, that's the word. The word grace in the Greek means a gift. And that something has happened, this gift in this person of Jesus happened in time, and then there's a so that. So Jesus came so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God sent the Spirit. And so there's two parts here. Because of grace, two things happen. The first one is that we're part of the family of God. And I I will talk more about this in the second half of of this sermon, but right now I want to just point out one thing that I think is really important that oftentimes as people who either grew up in the church or even if you just heard about what faith in Jesus is, we get, we get mis- mixed up. Um, it's, we, we, many of us have heard this type of a story, I think, when it comes to faith and when it comes to grace, that we were bad. We've been bad, 
I had a Chinese grandpa who only spoke very rudimentary English, and one of the things he knew how to say was, bad boy. That was like, bad boy. And I think like, that's what we hear when we think of God, bad boy or bad girl. And that's the primary thing. And so therefore, we deserve to be punished. This is the story that we've inherited. And so we deserve to be punished, but instead Jesus came, and now we've received grace. So we're not going to get punished. And what we need to do is believe that, and then we're forgiven. And so the outcome of it is kind of like this, oh, thank goodness, like I'm free to go. It reminds me a lot of this story uh, when I was thinking about this. It, it brought me back to my high school days. I, had a, I grew up in a really small town, and there was lots of like house parties and cabin parties. And by the way, when I say cabin where I come from, it's like a place that might or might not have running water. Uh, out here, especially if you're from Ontario, I think a cabin means something quite different. It's like a home, something like a palace that you have somewhere else with like Wi-Fi and all this stuff. I'm talking about a pretty rudimentary situation here. But my friend would host these parties at his cabin. And I remember one time he hosted a party. His parents didn't know. And someone came and kicked down the door. Uh, I grew up in a blue-collar town. These are the kind of things that people did when they had fun. This is fun uh, where I grew up. And so I remember my friend was sweating it. He, he knew his parents didn't know. And so he was headed stay with his family. That his good friend come in the morning, very early, like 30 in the morning, just clean. These blue-collar guys, but also these hard-working farm boys who are like, hey, it's 6 on a Sunday, it's time for chores. I'm going to go clean up the house. And so his, his response when he gets to the door at his parents' cabin is like, oh, it's just like this huge exhale. I'm not in trouble. I'm not going to get punished for what I did wrong. And the story of the Bible has that thread. You can pull that thread through it of what Jesus has done and what grace has accomplished in our lives. But I want to point out that that's not what's happening in this passage. That's not what Paul says. Paul is pointing out a very different reality, a relational reality, about what Jesus has done. And the story goes something like this. We're alienated from our true family, from our Father God. And so he sends his son to come and bring us back into the family. And we'll look more about at this next week to redeem us, to buy us back from the slavery that we found ourselves in and bring us back into the family of God. So that, you know, the first story is like this. I was in trouble, God saved me, and now I'm free to go. I was in big trouble, and now I don't have these consequences hanging over my life. But what Paul is referencing here is a different story. He's saying... It's not so much that you're free to go, you're free to come. There's now something true to you. There's an invitation into a family. It's a relational reality that you're free to come into a family, that grace nets up in relationship. So that's the first thing. Because of grace, we receive relationship. And the second thing he's saying in this passage is that because of grace, we receive the Spirit. We receive the Spirit. Now, we have to talk a little bit about this. Who or what is the Spirit? And if we were to go around the room and I was to ask 10 people, we'd probably get 10 different perspectives. And if we were to go outside these walls, we'd get 10 more different perspectives. Uh, This is a huge, big question mark, I think, for, for those of us in and outside of the church. But it's going to be really important to the rest of our study in Galatians because Paul will continue to reference this idea who is the Spirit? What is the Spirit? And he says, in the, in the book, if you read through the book of Galatians, he says things like, be led by the Spirit. 
Walk by the Spirit. Receive the Spirit. Bear the fruit of the Spirit. Pay attention to the Spirit. Partner with the Spirit again and again and again. So we need to get a better understanding of what this is or maybe get on the same page. And we're just going to chip away at it over the rest of this series. So this morning, I just want to say two things about who or what the Spirit is. The first is that the Spirit in the Bible is life. The Spirit equals life. Now, in Hebrew, the word for the Spirit is the word ruach, ruach. I don't usually do this, but let's just, let's get engaged this morning. Can everybody say it with me? Ruach. You ought to get, we have an old uh, a Chinese grandpa that's uh, beside us, and he comes out into the, into the alley every morning at like 6.30, and it's just like the first thing you hear is just like, you got to get that, you got to get that going if you want to say this word, okay? Ruach. Ruach. Okay, good, good. Um, and the word in Hebrew means wind or breath. It's the same word. And now we've got to think about this. We've got to do a little bit of, of time travel here and think about it from an ancient Near Eastern perspective in how they see life. Imagine if someone here is lying here in the middle of the floor and they have no breath in them. What has happened? Well, we'll know that person has died. They've lost their life. And so breath, they're just putting two and two together. Breath equals life. If someone doesn't have breath, they don't have life. And as a sidebar, blood is the same way in, in the in ancient Near Eastern thought. If you ever read through the Hebrew scriptures and you're like, these people seem really obsessed with like blood and like all these weird rules and regulations about blood, they seem very odd to us, it's because they have the same thought pattern. If a person's lying here and all the blood has drained out of their body, then there's like they've lost are sacred things for these people. And in many traditional cultures, it's still true. But that's why. It's because they represent life. And so breath and spirit and life are all intertwined ideas. And it's uh, breath and wind, for example, they're like an invisible force, but they're very real. So even though you can't see breath, you can't see wind, you can see its effect if, if the breath or the wind is blowing through the trees on our way home as you leave 19th. You'll see the effects of the wind, even though you can't see it itself. And so it animates the world. It animates us. And, and so it is with the Spirit of God. When you think of the word Spirit of God, this is what it's talking about. It's this, this uh, animating, life-animating force or person that emanates from God and gives life into our world. Now, at some point, um, some of us may start feeling quite uncomfortable here and saying, like, okay, this, I understand that people believe that, you know, 3,000 years ago, but we're modern people. Like, we don't believe in spirits. And, I, and if that's you today, I, I totally understand. And I'll just be honest. I feel slightly odd talking about this. It's not something, a mental story that I grew up with. It's like the spirit, the spirit of God and what the Spirit of God does. Um, but I also want to point that there's a lot of very smart and even secular people today who recognize that there's something more to our world than just the things that we can rationally come up with in our mind, just what we can see, what we can measure, and what we can touch. Let me just give you one example. It's from the, from the realm of economics. Economics is, according to Wikipedia, the social science that studies the production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services. So there's nothing probably more tactile, nothing more rational, nothing less spiritual than economics, I would say. It's all about predicting patterns and behaviors, about buying and selling goods, supply and demand, these kinds of ideas. And it assumes that people are rational beings, that we can predict behavior because people are going to act the same and be rational over time. But 
There's a very famous economist, and if we were probably to go around the room, we probably wouldn't be able to come up with too many names of economists, but you might have heard of this guy. His name is John Maynard Keyes. He's one of the most famous economists of all times, and he noticed that even in economics, there are things that couldn't be explained just by our minds alone. Listen to what he says. He wrote this. Even apart from the instability due to speculation, there's the instability due to the characteristic of human nature that a large proportion of our positive activities depend on spontaneous optimism rather than a mathematical expectation, whether moral or hedonistic or economic. He's saying there's something more than just calculating the world going on. Most probably of our decisions to do something can only be taken as a result of, what do you think he might say there? (laughs) Animal spirits. Fascinating, isn't it? Animal spirits of a spontaneous urge to action rather than inaction. Not as an outcome of a weighted average of quantitative benefits multiplied by quantitative probabilities. Some of you just blacked out at that last sentence there. (laughs) What I want to point out is that this very smart person functioning in a very, you know, modern, secular, rational area says, like, there's these, these things that are happening as I observe the market, as I observe people, that I can't explain them. I have to go outside rational capability understanding what they are. And he calls it animal spirits. And this is, if you study economics, you'll, you'll hear this word. It's actually used by economists to just explain we don't know what's moving the market. That there's something else going on. And what Keyes is saying here is what I'm trying to say as well. We're rational beings, the Bible would say. That's a part of who we are. It's not something we have to be down about. But we're also spiritual beings who inhabit a spiritual world. The Bible would say we're not less than rational beings, we're more. That there's more going on in the world than we, than we can just make sense of with our minds, with patterns, with study. And at a fundamental gut orientation level, we're driven by something more than just what we think. That's what Keyes is getting on with his quote here. It's not just what we think and what we believe that will motivate us into the world. We're driven by a story. Every person in here, every person in the entire world has a spirit of a narrative that we are answering all day, every day. The big questions of who we are, where we come from, what this whole thing is on about. You know, I just watched the movie uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. If you guys, I don't know if anyone's watched that movie. It's a fantastic movie. Very fascinating. And basically it's just saying, that's answering that big question. If the metaverse is real... And anything that you do kind of doesn't matter. Is there any point? I won't give away. I won't spoiler. give a spoiler for you. But it's answering that question. In the metaverse, is there any point to human life? And so we all live with this spirit, something mobilizing us, a story that we're a part of where we see this is where I'm going with my life. And whatever your answers with, to those questions are, they're the things that mobilize you in the world. And it's a force that's not purely rational. It includes the rational faculties that we have, but it's not purely rational. It's more like breathing. It's just something that we do. It's not not animal spirits. spirits. That's true, yeah. That's just Key's language for it. But it's to say that we, there's more than just the rational capacity of what's happening in our world. And so the Bible also has a story to put forward in this place, a spiritual story, just as everybody else does and everything else in our world. And let's just go back to Genesis 1 to give a quick recap of what that is. That there's a God who wants to create a world. And his vision for the world, the point of the world, is this whole world flourishing. 
that he wants to create. For life, that's breath. And the agent of the creation of God is his spirit. We see in that narrative that the spirit is hovering. And what releases God's spirit to create into the world, to create these places of flourishing? It's the word of God. So I want you to take your hand and put it in front of your mouth and just say, hello, hello. Or maybe say, let's say, let's say uh, a word with P, pointed. How about that word? What do you feel on your hand? Outside of you just remembering, like I might have had too much coffee. I hope nobody gets too close to me this morning. You, you feel the breath in your hand. And so this, this narrative in Genesis 1 is saying the same thing. As God speaks the world into creation, he's releasing his spirit out in, into the world to create new life. It's the same thing that happens when we speak. Our spirit is released. And so in Genesis 1, God speaks the world into creation. And so what does it mean when Paul says, receive this spirit? of God here in this passage. And to any of us, the invitation to receive the Spirit of God is an invitation to life. To receive the life of God, to receive the person of God, and to join in this story of creation that we see happening from Genesis 1. That's the story of the Bible. Creation to new creation. And God says, you are here, somewhere in the middle. And I invite you into this story to receive my Spirit to receive this story, to mobilize you into the world, to be part of this new creation that I'm making. So that's the first thing, the breath and life. The second thing I want us to notice about the Spirit of God is that it's the presence of God. Now, in the ancient Near East, God, gods lived, at least in their mindset, gods lived in two places. One is that they lived in the heavens, and then the place that they lived in earth, on the earth was called the temple, a temple of the god. And in the temple, at the very center, they would have an image of a god or an idol of the god. And that would be the, the representation of the god in, uh, in, the, in the temple and on earth. And, and it had several steps, or there were several steps to creating a god in the ancient priests. So the first is that they would set apart both the thing that they were making the god with, the material, and the people who were making the god. So let's imagine they're making a god out of wood. They would set apart that wood. And then they would set apart the carpenters. The carpenters would have to go through some rituals to get themselves ready. Then they would build and they would make this idol. Then they would go through all these rituals where they would open the eyes of the idol. They would open the ears. They would open the mouth. They would move the limbs. And the final step was that they would invite the fiery breath, the spirit of the god, to come and dwell in this idol. Whether that was Baal or Amon-Re or Dagon, they would say the spirit the spirit of this God come and dwell within this thing that we've just made. And that is the moment when the presence of the God would come and be in that idol. And the Bible is picking up on the story, but in a very different way. So what is it saying? That as, instead of material out there, that's the image of God, the Bible says something fascinating, that we actually, people, are the icons, are the image, are the idols of our God in this world. That's the vision of what it means to be human in the Bible. We represent and reflect this God. And what do we see when Jesus comes, that our creator becomes part of the creation himself? Jesus sets himself apart. He lives a holy life. And, and we see him going around, opening people's eyes, opening their ears, healing their, their arms and their limbs. And then in the final chapter of his life, what does he do? He gives up his breath so that we can receive divine breath. That's what this passage is referencing, this long story. That we, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we can become, we can receive 
the spirit, the breath of the God, and become his presence here on earth, both as individuals and as people, that we can now become new humans here on earth. So, what happens when God's life and presence take residence in us? What are the characteristics of a community that are indwelt, people that are indwelt by the Spirit? And what's the vision for what it means to be a new creation or a new human? That's going to be the the questions we're answering for the rest of the study in Galatians. And this morning, we have this beautiful passage that talks about three things, three characteristics of what it means for people who are living in this story of grace and who have received God's spirit, that we're adopted, that we're children, and that we're heirs. We're adopted, we're children, and we're heirs. So I just want to look at those three this morning with the rest of the time that we have. The first thing that's true of us, if we're living in the story of grace, and we have God's spirit in us, his life and presence, is that we're adopted. Jesus has come, it says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, before I get into this, I want to recognize that adoption is not a single narrative out there, and, and that's, by that I mean it's not all good. There are stories I know of people uh, that are very tragic and difficult um, and involve as much pain as they do beauty, and I recognize that, and so I'm not trying, as I talk about adoption in a very positive way here this morning, I'm not trying to minimize that there are also difficult stories out there. Uh, and that's okay, and that's part of, of what it means uh, to, to be living in this world. And we don't want to deny those things at all. The second thing I'll just say is that our family has not adopted personally. But we've, we've loved being part of this community where we've had many adoption stories come through. And that's part of who we are, and just uh, we feel honored and privileged, even though our family has never been able to do that, uh, that we've been, on, been able to be part of a lot of those stories because we're part of this community. And I'll just give a, a quick little uh, plug that hopefully on November 19th, we're going to have a fostering, adopting, and respite care conference where we just bring people to talk about their experience and, and for us as a community and anyone else who wants to join, that we can learn how to be part of that. Even Maybe adoption is not part of your story as your family, but how can we as a church family support that in our community? So we, because I've been part of this community for a while and we had a lot of people adopt, um, I've been able to be part of a lot of those stories or at least hear a lot of those stories. And uh, one thing that I've learned from watching people adopt again and again and again is that these stories never go how you think they're going to go. They almost never, ever go smoothly. And they're characterized by paperwork. And then more paperwork. And then more paperwork. And then by setbacks and red tape. And then bureaucratic problems. And more bureaucratic problems. And waiting and waiting and waiting. And you wait for months and sometimes years, and then on a random Tuesday, you get a call that says you need to be here in two days. Sometimes people have to travel around the world. Sometimes it's just across the street. But they have to shut their whole lives down to say, okay, we're going to go get this child. And it's been an honor and and fascinating to watch families go through these setbacks again and again and again, delay after delay, payment after payment. That's one of the things for me as a cheap person. I'm like, oh, just so much money. Sometimes I'm like, wow, you you spend so much money to go and bring this child to your home. And I just think what's to, you know, persevere through all these difficulties, to give all that money, to put their lives on hold sometimes for years and years at a time. 
And as I've talked to them, it's really just one thing. It's love. It's love that mobilizes them past all the difficulties and all the time and all the energy that they have to expend because they love this child. And the moment that, that, that people get the picture of the child that they're going to adopt is such a beautiful and amazing moment because it goes from an idea to one person. And to be there for those moments and just to hear the expression of love and the hope and to see that this child now will be part of their family and the love that's poured out is an absolutely beautiful and amazing moment. That they value this child, that they want them, that they would give up absolutely anything for them. And the Bible is saying when we adopt here as people, it's a small and imperfect picture of what God has done for us in this passage. That's why Paul is picking up on this metaphor, that God has done the same thing for us at great, great cost to himself after waiting and after going through setback after setback and difficulty after difficulty, he pursued us. And it wasn't a flippant decision. It wasn't a begrudging decision, I think, which many of us might think that God kind of had to do it. But it was a decision made out of love, poured out over time to bring us into his family. And it's this beautiful call out, I love you, I want you, from God. When Paul is referencing adoption here, that's what he's saying. And I think this, this, these words, I want you, are some of the deepest human longings that we have as people. To find somebody of consequence in our lives and for them to come and say to us, I want you. I like you. I want to be around you. I value you. I'll move heaven and earth to be with you. That mobilizes us into the world. But I don't know about you, but that's my everyday experience is, is very, very different. I'm not, I don't receive that from God, and I don't see myself getting that from God. Instead, I'm mobilized to go out into the world and find other people who say, oh yeah, I want you. You're somebody. You're worth something. And I think that's part of growing up. If you think about growing up as a kid, um, you know, for a while that your family gives you that kind of love. And I grew up in a really great family where my parents loved me and communicated that to me often. But at some point, you know, kind of in my teenage years, there comes this pivot to you looking outside the home for that. Whether that's from, you know, girlfriends or uh, you know, friends or from school, from the marks, from the work that you do, whatever. You pivot outside to look for that somewhere else. And it's just not enough. You know, I, if I get bullied, when I remember being a teenager, if I would have got bullied in school, I did get bullied in school. It's not enough to go in front of the mirror in the bathroom at school after getting bullied and be like, but my mom thinks I'm cool. You're looking for that somewhere else. You go in search of it somewhere else. You know, one of my favorite comedians, John Mulaney, says it this way. He says, when I walk down the street, I want everyone to like me so much it's exhausting. My wife said that walking around with me was like walking around with someone who's running for the mayor of nothing. And that there can be that feel, what feeling where we're just walking around looking for someone to say, I want you, you're enough. And we're making bids for someone to say, we're okay. And I think that's how some of us treat God. Yeah, I know you've adopted me, but it's like my mom saying I'm cool. It doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really count. And that's why I think Paul is reminding the Galatians of this story and reminding us of this story. Because they know that they're adopted, but they can so quickly and easily forget. Going to try to find that somewhere and slip into other stories, be mobilized by other spirits into the world. 
And so Paul writes to remind them and to remind us to zoom our lens out, to remind ourselves of the story that God wants us so much that he gave his absolute best to adopt us into his family. And he's saying with these words, I adopt you, and with the story of Jesus, I want you. That's what he says to each one of us. That's what this word adoption means, that God loves us so much that he wants us. He wants us in his family, not just to remove some sort of sin baggage in our life, although that's part of it, but God loves you enough and wants you enough to draw you in, to adopt you into his family. And when we allow that to become our story, to become our home base, it absolutely changes our lives. When we put grace at the center, that's what Paul says, it mobilizes us into the world in a different way. We receive a new spirit, the spirit of adoption. So that's the first thing. Adoption. The second thing is that we receive the spirit of becoming children of God, that we are children of God. Now, you might be thinking, didn't we already say this? Like, you're adopted, you're already a child. And that's true. But Paul is emphasizing something slightly different here in verse 6. Listen to what he says. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He's talking about maybe adoption as like a legal status. Here he's talking about something much more personal. I'd say even something much more visceral. And I just focus on two phrases here. The first phrase is the word he uses, cry. In the original language, this is a deeply powerful phrase. And it, it talks about this loud, passionate, reflexive call out. That you think of like what a, a small child would do, whoever's kid that was that fell off the chair earlier. The first thing they do is they cry out. They cry out for someone to be there, to help them, to hold them. And, and this cry is towards someone in this passage. It's to Abba, Father. The first word is the Aramaic word, which would be the language that Jesus spoke. And the second is Greek. So they're just the same thing. But this word Abba is like, you know, Daddy or something like that. Papa. So it's what a young child would call out to their father. And it's, it's a term of warm affection and confidence that my father will be there. And again, I think this, this characterizes one of the deepest desires of humanity, that we would cry out in those moments of darkness, in those moments we fall off our chair, and that there would be someone there we can trust who's ready to hold us and embrace us. But, you know, in his wonderful book, The Road to St. Augustine, author James K. Smith shares how that's not the reality that most of us experience in our lives. Much of the Western world is characterized by us crying out, Abba, Father, into what seems like an empty void. We cry out in these moments of pain. We cry out for someone to be there who will care for us, who will embrace us, and no one is there. He says late capitalism, this moment that we live in, is the age where everybody has a computer in their pocket and a gaping hole where their father should be. And he quotes the legendary, he quotes a whole bunch of people, but does give you two, two, excuse me, the legendary producer T-Bone Burnett, who said rock and roll is all about daddy. It's his cry, Abba. It's just one embarrassing scream of daddy. It's just fathers and sons out there proving something to someone in the most intense way possible. I was worth a little more attention than I got. And then he quotes this psychologist, Margot Main, and she wrote this book uh, and coined this term, father hunger. She's a psychologist who was meeting with women who were just having eating disorders, and she was trying to understand what the cause of it is. And so she coined this phrase that the absence of their fathers netted out in in negative and difficult relationships with food and hunger in their lives. 
And then Smith shares his own story, which I want to share with you. He says this, my, my father left us when I was 11. I've not seen or heard from him since I was 21, the year I became a father. And I've been a father longer than I had a father. And my stepfather disappeared when I was 33. And I haven't heard a word from him or laid eyes on him since. I don't know where either of them lives, nor do they know a thing about me. As a father, this is unfathomable to me. I can't imagine my children making their way somewhere in this cold, hard world without knowing we're at home for them. I can't imagine my children as a blank space vaguely somewhere. Suffice it to say that neither my father nor my stepfather has come looking for me. You can just hear the the heartbreak in his writing, the longing and the picture of someone who who just has cried out Abba into the void with no one there to hear back. And, And maybe you can relate to that story. Maybe you didn't have a father. Maybe your father left. Maybe you were in an abusive situation with your father. Or maybe your father was just an absentee father, mentally, emotionally, physically. And he says these words that neither my father nor my stepfather has come looking for me. But then he continues, but a father did. At the heart of the madness of the gospel is an almost unbelievable mystery that speaks to the deep human hunger only intensified by a generation of broken homes, to be seen and known and loved by a father. Maybe navigating the tragedy and heartbreak of this fallen world is realizing this hunger might not be met by the ones we expect or hope will come looking for us, but then meeting a father who adopts you, who chooses you, who sees you a long way off and comes running and says, I've been waiting for you. And this is what Paul is referencing when he's talking about crying out, Abba, Father. That in the person of God, through Jesus and through the Spirit, when we cry out, Abba, Father, we always hear the words of the Father back to us, a present Father who's saying, I love you. You know, one of my favorite passages that I come back to again and again is from Jesus' baptism, where he he says these words over Jesus, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is before Jesus has done anything. He hasn't started his ministry. He hasn't done a a miracle. He has no followers. And Jesus hears these words spoken over him. That you're loved. That you are someone that I want. That you're my beloved, that I'm well pleased in you. And when Paul is saying, when we are our children of God, these words are ours. And that every moment that we scream out, Abba, Father, every moment that we fall off our chair, that these words are just waiting by the Spirit to be spoken over each of us, that we are the children of God. So we're adopted, we're children of God, and then finally we're heirs. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but in this passage, the term sons has come up a lot. So verse 7 is a good example. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then God has made you an heir. And you might be wondering, like, what's with all this male-dominated language in this passage? Well, in this passage, it's really important because Paul is not just being a misogynist here. He's actually being very intentional, and he's being very subversive in his time. Um, He's saying that whoever you are... So in that context and in that time, the males were the only ones who would receive an inheritance. And the oldest male would receive the half of the inheritance, so the majority of it. And so when Paul is saying that you are sons, he's, he's saying something phenomenal. He's saying that no matter who you are, male or female, a female can receive the inheritance. Jew or Greek, 
In the family of God, only the Jewish people received the inheritance. And now he's saying it doesn't matter which ethnicity you're a part of. Last week, we looked at the story of Matthew and the story of Simon. It doesn't matter, he's saying, if you're Simon, who's lived his life in service of his people, or you're a person like Matthew, who's basically been making money off the back of his people, an oppressive power. He's saying the inheritance of God is available to you. All that the Father has to give, his absolute best is there for you as an inheritance. It's an absolutely staggering and beautiful promise that all of what God has is ours. Now, some of us might say, I don't feel like God has given me anything, that his inheritance, this inheritance language isn't something I get. I more feel like God is holding out on me because there's things that I want and there's probably some things that I need that God has not given to me. And so this language doesn't make sense to me. And, and, and uh, I just want to point out two things um, that might help us here. The first is the question, uh, question, have you actually cried out to God for those things? Have you cried out to those things that you feel like God is holding out on you about? And the Bible says something paradoxical. It says that God knows what we need before we ask him. But it also says that you have not because you ask not. And sometimes I realize in my own life that I'm just hold, I feel like God's holding out on me, but I haven't actually asked. I haven't come before him and asked. And I'm treating him as if he's a mind reader rather than a father who longs to give good gifts. And I, this translates into my other relationships as well. Sometimes I realize I'm frustrated with my wife. And she's like, oh, I would have done that if you would have asked me for it. I'm like, well, why can't you just read my mind? We've been married for a long time. Come on, get in the head in the game. And, and it's the same thing. If I don't communicate to her what it is that I want or need, she can't provide it. And God is inviting us into that. And I think so many of us are feeling like God's holding out on us, but we haven't actually come in front of him and asked. Have you asked? And the second thing, the reason sometimes why I, I at least think God is holding out on me is because the inheritance that I want is not the good thing he wants to give. The inheritance that I want is not the good thing that he wants to give. As always, C.S. Lewis illustrates this better than anyone else. So let's read his quote. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? And these are the moments where we get confused in our relationship with God. Because we, we invite him into our, li- our lives and we're like, God, the bathroom, the bathroom needs renovation. I need some new cabinets. I want you to make the living room bigger so we can have a bigger TV in here. Like, help me get ahead. Help me get comfortable. Go along to my plan for my life. And God, at some point in our lives, generally seems pretty uninterested in renovating the house in the way that we want. And so we get this feeling like we're out of sync, like he doesn't have a good inheritance to give us. But here's what Lewis, or how he continues. He says, the explanation for these emotions is that God is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Because he's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers and making courtyards. Because you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace that he intends to come and live in it himself. So often, our problem is because our vision of what our lives are going to look like is just very different than what God wants to give us. We're trying to be built into decent little cottages, and God says, no, no, no. The inheritance I have for you is something much bigger. 
I'm building you into a, a palace. You know, life in the spirit is not just our desires writ large into the universe. That's not what it is. Being an heir of God is not like being the younger son in Luke 15, if you know that story. Just like, I wish the father would die so I could go take his stuff and party. That's not the inheritance that we receive. Being an heir is something very different. It's being an inheritor of the name of God. God is not interested in just making a 2.0 version of you, someone who's like slightly less lustful, someone who's slightly more generous, someone who's slightly more loving. He wants to make you into someone who's a new human, someone who's worthy of carrying the name of God. He wants to put his name on you to bring you into his family and to make you into someone who looks like Jesus. He's building a palace. You're not, and you're an heir of the family story. All this, these stories that we have in the scripture that God says you become an heir of that story. The blessing that he says to Abraham, that I want to bless you in order that you would be blessing the world. That's the vision. That's the inheritance that God has for us. Not a better cottage, but that we actually become people who are indwelled by the spirit of God in a way that actually shines his light out and blesses the rest of the world. You know, the, 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 the promises of God are all ours. One of the ones that I cling on to from 1 Corinthians 15, it says that if Jesus has been resurrected, if that's the true story of the universe, and then that's the spirit in which I allow to, to change my life and to come into my life, then it says your labor is not in vain. That whatever we do when we partner with God, it's not in vain. Maybe you're at home with young kids and every day is exactly the same. And you've read Chicka Chicka Boom Boom for the 3,000th time today. And you're let, it's just monotonous. Your labor is not in vain if you're partnering with God. Maybe you're an accountant and every day you're an engineer and it's just like numbers and you're getting bored of your work. Your labor is not in vain if Christ has been resurrected. That's the story that we walk into. And the story that God brings us into is also the story of creation to new creation. This promise that he's making all things new. That in these places that we labor that are hard, in these people that we labor with who seems to just go in cycles back and forth again, that God says, I promise I will make all things new. I will make you new. That we become an inheritor of that story. And we become an inheritor of this family. That we inherit not only a new spirit that calls us sons, but we inherit new brothers and sisters. Are they the ones you would have chose? Are they the people you would invite to your cottage? Maybe not. But they're the people that God has said, I put my spirit in them. And if you learn how to put me at the center, we will become a new people. And we'll actually learn how to see the power of God's spirit at work in here and shining out through the world. Through the spirit of God, through grace and the spirit of God, we are adopted. We are children and we are heirs. Imagine what our community would be like if if we all took that and allowed it to be true of who we are. And imagine what our world might see if we were a community that was rooted in this. Let's pray to close. God, powerful and beautiful words. Thank you for the privilege of reading them this morning. And I ask that uh, these identity markers would become true, increasingly true of my life and increasingly true of the life of our church. So we invite you now in this time to make your presence known as we respond through prayer, through singing, through giving, through community. We just invite you into this space. 
that we ask that we would receive, we would be people who are open to receiving your life, your story, your spirit, your presence this morning. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.